Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fireside Chat Fridays, sponsored by Parents for Public Schools of Syracuse. Oh, there we go. <laughs> My computer is giving me a heart attack. Let's try that again. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Fireside Chat Fridays, sponsored by Parents for Public School Syracuse, where we discuss all things related to education here in the city of Syracuse. Oh my gosh, my computer is being a putz right now. I am your host, the idea dynamo Samantha Pierce, and I am joined today by my colleague, Liza Citron, this autistic disabled advocate and future special education teacher. And I asked my kids earlier today about what they thought was important to have to help them learn. I well, had some pretty insightful answers. Uh, one suggestion was that they wanted to learn more about U.S. history. They also talked about learning in smaller class settings. <laughs> I, I, I really love this one because they were very clear, very straightforward that they wanted a more fun curriculum to learn from. And that doesn't also, surprise me. Yeah. And they also talked about having teachers who were nice. And I asked them, well, what makes a teacher nice? And their answers were when a teacher cares about students and their needs, and when a teacher helps them when they ask for help. So Liza, as a former SESD student, and as someone who's in training right now to be a special education teacher, what do you think are some of the things that are important to have in order for children to learn? Well, I, I feel it important to mention, uh, as I say this, that not only was I a former SESD student, I was there from around fourth to eighth grade. But at other times, other than that, I was also homeschooled. So I have the uh, experience of both sides. And during high school, when I was homeschooled, a lot of that was self-teaching. So obviously that correlates to the smaller class sizes because, you know, my class size was a class size of one. <laughs> yeah. But as for what's important for students to learn, well, first of all, we need to make the classroom a safe space. This is especially true for students from minority communities because they have these pressures on them in the world that can often bleed over into the classroom and they may be going through a lot at home whether that's because there's an increase of about two times the rate of abuse, physical abuse specifically uh, amongst disabled children, specifically neurodivergent and autistic children, or because as English language learner students, they, are, they have pressures on them from their home culture and the culture that they're going into. And they are in the process of trying to learn not only just with the challenges of learning in general, but learning in a language that they are only just acquiring. There's mm -hmm. so much difference between second language acquisition and first language, language acquisition, <laughs> pardon me, it's been a long day, which could be a topic all on its own. But one of the first major things is making sure that your students feel comfortable and safe in the classroom. 
This can be done by embracing culture, understanding disability, having uh, people who represent the students are from the same communities there in the school, numerous things. And it can also be done by fostering a sense of classroom community and interdependency uh, in that students will not only learn from the teacher, but learn from and respect one another. When we think of educational theories like that of Lev Vygotsky, who from his theory, we draw the phrase zone of proximal development, which is the ideal space for a child to be in to learn. That zone is somewhere where the work is not impossible for them to do, i.e. too difficult, but it's also not something they can do on their own because if they did it on their own, there would be less opportunity for learning. So this really interacts with language and things that we see in the classroom and the need for someone who is more knowledgeable in particular areas. Mm -hmm. And that need not always be a teacher. I mean, one of the amazing things about the classroom and having different students there is that they all have different lived experiences and Mm -hmm. One student, someone's peer can actually be a more knowledgeable other in a particular area for that student and help them learn. So that's one of the reasons why a sense of of classroom community is especially important. Uh, I've got more, but if you, I don't know if we want to stop there for now. Uh, Well, I love that you mentioned Vygotsky and his theories because um, one of the things that I found really helpful in working with my kiddos is understanding the concept of scaffolding, meaning you you approach a student where they're at and you kind of give them those stepping stones so that they can move to the next level. And that's, I think that's something that's important for students to have as they learn. Now that is something that falls within the realm of training teachers, training teaching assistants, training all the classroom aides so that they understand how that works. So we can put that into the category of training the training and professional development for staff that help them be successful at engaging with their students, connecting with their students. And I love also that you mentioned the classroom being a safe space because one of the tenets of trauma-sensitive schools, wherein the the whole idea of the trauma-sensitive schooling is to make the educational experience and to make the educational space a safe space for students that they can see as a refuge for all of the hard things that are happening in their lives outside of the classroom. So I think those are definitely some things that are important. And it's even something that that when I asked my children, they mentioned that they didn't use the terminology, but they did mention the fact that they want a classroom where their teachers help them when they have a challenge and where their teachers care about them. So Mm -hmm. those are two great things that you pointed out. And we are live on the Parents for Public Schools Facebook page. Parents for Public Schools of Syracuse. We're also live on Sanchia A Calendar Inc. We are live on Neurodiversity Consulting LLC, and we are live on my Facebook page, Samantha Pierce. If you have any questions or any comments that you want to share, please feel free to do so. We love interacting with our audience. Now, 
there are a lot of there are a lot more things that go into making up a classroom and making school a safe place and a place where learning can happen. What are some other things that you think as someone who will be a teacher someday are really important for the learning process? Um, there's so much. <laughs> uh, first of all, I think we need to be clear in that we understand that the student is making an effort. Hmm. Whether this is for disabled students or for English language learner students or any students at all, we as humans, and I know I bring up the fundamental attribution error a lot, but it's core to our behavior. We as humans tend to assume that our reactions, our actions are reactionary to a situation. That what we do is because, oh, we're in this situation. Uh, I'm acting this way because I got treated badly at work. Whereas we are likely to assume that, that others' actions acting not irritable, but, you know, are due to dispositional factors. That's just the way that they are. And if we extrapolate this to the school setting, we're in danger of assuming that students' performance is due to intrinsic factors of who they are, rather than situational factors that may be affecting their performance. For example, like I said with English language learner students, they don't have full access to the language in which they're learning. So they're not able to showcase their full ability to understand and the knowledge that they may have as a, as a background for their lived experiences that their English as a native language peers may be able to express. They're only showcasing under 50% of their true knowledge because they don't have the ability to express it. So this is a case where we have to, have to, have to assume if we're going to treat students equitably and make the classroom a good space for learning for these students, that it's not that they don't understand, it's that there are external factors in their life, whether that's adjusting to a new culture or trauma that they experienced in their home country, as we're seeing with a lot of refugees, or even just the fact that they are trying to get used to a new language, which acquisition of a first yeah. language doesn't take constant effort, and it is set off from birth. Acquisition of a second language, on the other hand, does take consistent, intentional effort to learn. Yes, I'm, I'm learning that as I've added, I think it's a fifth language to the, to the list of <laughs> languages that I'm learning. And I was going to say. Yeah, I know exactly what it feels like to know what you want to say, but not have the vocabulary and the language that you're trying to say it in. And yes, we, we've got a couple comments from a, a name you might find familiar. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, from from Alex. And, and the first comment is that I agree classrooms should be a safe space. I think teachers want it that way. But other factors get in the way. And, and yes, 
I can't really imagine that there's a teacher out there that doesn't want a classroom to be a safe space for their students. Yeah. And if there is a teacher out there who doesn't want their classroom to be a safe space for their students, it's a safe bet that that's someone who shouldn't, shouldn't be, be teaching, teaching children. And so yeah. what are some of those factors that, that prevent teachers from making a safe space in their classroom? Well, first of all, I would say one of the things is really lack of knowledge. Teachers don't have the knowledge based on the theories or the knowledge even of what their students are facing, whether it's that they're too busy because school the schools are not providing them enough, whether it's that they are not able to interact with, with the kids in the way that would get them that information and make and help them get to know the children in order to make that classroom a safe space because of our current educational system. Or even if the school, there are things in the way that the school is not providing certain policies that can interfere with the teacher's ability to create an a classroom environment that's truly conducive to learning and safe for the students. It also, it takes effort. We as adults, I've seen this. Kids, if you tell them, oh, I, I'm the reason I had to do this the other day, the reason that I'm using a cane. Well, you know how you feel when you stand on one foot for too long? Yeah. Well, I feel like that all the time and this helps me to stand up. And they just go like, yep, okay, I understand. Adults, on the other hand, we have these preconceived notions and, and ideologies and prejudices that, that form from us being part of a larger society. And these gradually form as we age in a society. And they start really in, in elementary school and up because that's when we really try and find our place in, in society. You know, another theoretician, uh, Erickson, I think, that, I think that's Erickson, not Kohlberg. <clears throat> Either way, um, the, the stages that you go through, and that's really when those ideas begin. So a lot, it, 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 it's partially preconceived notions on the part of the teacher about particular groups, whether that's, whether that's autistic people, I've seen this all too often in that they have preconceived notions about, about autism and they can't possibly believe that I am because A, I'm a girl, B, I don't display in the way that, they're, that they know of. Mm -hmm. And this applies to, to other things too. They have preconceived notions about people from a particular country. Yeah, or the, the, the Im implicit or unconscious bias Biases, that, yes. that everybody has about everyone that's not themselves. And I, 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 underst I understand that, you know, when you, when you walk into a classroom as a teacher, you have to be aware that those things exist in your head so that when they, be, when they begin to influence your behavior, you can take a second look or a third look so that you, you don't let those biases run the show. Um, There's also lack of provision uh, by schools, whether it's lack of money, as we often see here, 
in in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that that schools like classrooms in JD are automatically going to be, you know, safer for their students, but there is a financial issue there in the teachers aren't being provided enough and that makes it really difficult for them to get their students what they need mm-hmm. and we're talking about the structures in place mm-hmm. accommodations um services for english language learners services for any student yeah. that needs them but they're not able to because of either the structures in place by the school by the district or just because of the financial situation they're in yeah that that the finance the finances are that's something that is a we already know that that's a big barrier to teachers being able to teach or being able to teach the way they want to and being able to teach in excellence you know i've i've hardly met a teacher who wants to do a crappy job and no yeah you know i, I come from a family of educators and I've seen, I've seen like in my home, what teachers are like when they go home. They're always teaching all the time. That you know, that teacher brain is always on. Yes. Um, you know, I had a teacher at home in my house who was constantly teaching me, constantly working on on, on teaching his students. And you know, there were times where I wanted to get away from learning things, but you know, now now I'm a super nerd who loves learning just for the sake of learning. Despite but, the fact that he teaches a different age, still the same. Mm-hmm, yeah. And you know, so we know that teachers want to do well. We know that they want to do right by their students. But we also know that they often don't have the training or the, 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 the classroom tools, the equipment to do a proper job. And Rain notes that... Part of the job as parents is to inform and teach when needed. And sometimes, yes, we do have to inform teachers and teach them about our kiddos and what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I've often had the experience of getting a phone call from a teacher. Okay, this is what's happening, but you didn't hear it from me. (laughs) Because apparently when teachers say this is what we need in our classroom to take care of our students, that seems to fall on deaf ears very often. And that frustrates me to no end. You have teachers who are in the classroom every single day, five days a week, several hours a day with their students. Of course, I'm talking before COVID. Yes. Oh, well, what they need in their classrooms to help their students. Now we have teachers who are on their computers all day with their students. Guess what? They still know what their students need because they're talking to them all day long. And, you know, I I have a hard time wrapping my head around what it is like for teachers doing this, having to make that sudden abrupt shift to virtual learning a year ago, trying to figure out how to continue to serve their students, how to reach their students. And, oh my God, Gosh, I know when I see that, when I get to see my kids' teachers again in person, you know, we're all going to look at each other and be like, wow, what happened to you? A pandemic happened to us. Yeah, something that we haven't had the equivalent of in a century. 
Yeah. And I think one of the things that is that is important to think about when it comes to um, supporting learning in a classroom, as we begin to send our students back to the classroom for longer and longer periods of time is these children are coming in having lived through a pandemic, having lived through losing family members, having lived through losing friends, neighbors. And that leaves an yeah. emotional mark that is going yeah. to, it's going to manifest in the classroom. And it's going to manifest in the teachers and the students. So what are the resources that we're putting in place to make sure that teachers are supported in dealing with their own trauma that they've experienced? I also think we'll have to, and I also, I also think we have to uh, think about what exactly this is going to do to the education of students who were born towards the beginning of the pandemic, because mm. it's been, or, or even just before, because it's been a year and two months now, and a lot of these kids may not be leaving the house very often, socializing with others, mm. and we have to think about how that's going to affect them going forward. And mm. a lot of these are probably, if I teach first grade once I graduate, these are probably going to be the ages of the kids that I'll be working with. Mm. So I, I think it's especially important to consider what that has, not only on the, even, even not on the, just on the children who were born during the pandemic, although that is incredibly important, but what it, effect it has on the kids who are in their very formative years at this point mm -hmm. five-year-olds six-year-olds yeah the kids who were supposed to start kindergarten in September yes. but didn't they have no oh my goodness the experience that they've had thus far yeah we, you know I can't even begin to imagine what that's doing to them and I am extremely concerned that about what kinds of resources and supports are going to be in place when these kids finally do hit a classroom. And, excuse me, it's allergy season. I, I'm very sorry. <laughs> kindergarten is necessary. A lot of the time, kindergarten is where they get used to being in a classroom, yeah. as does, or pre-K or first grade or things around that area. And if they're thrown right into a second grade classroom, you know, that they, they haven't had that adjustment period. So we really are going to need these supports and these potentially even alternate ways of teaching and alternate ways of treating students and reforming as we go into classrooms again. Yeah. And this now, is going to be especially true for, for neurodivergent students. Yes. And we know that um, the Syracuse City School District will be receiving $128.5 million from the federal government to spend on the education of students. They have until June to submit their plan for how they're going to spend it to the state. Now, thinking as a teacher and thinking as a student with a disability who was in the Syracuse City School District, what some of your top priority? What would be some of your top priorities? Were you to get the chance 
to make that budget for how to spend that money? Well, that's a difficult one because when I was in, when I was in school, we didn't have the after effects of a global pandemic. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I can't really speak to that as much aside from the theoretical aspect. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to what we need after a pandemic. What I can speak to is what students may have needed long before that. Yeah. I know that for me, people often see autism as one of the categories where you will immediately get an IEP. You you have it, quote unquote, easy. You're not doing as much work. You're not. And that's fundamental misunderstanding of accommodations, but the getting of the IEP itself, people often assume that that's an automatic. It's not. Getting accommodations, if you fall anywhere but the typical perception of autism, and even then, you're going to have an incredibly hard time. I think we need to do more evaluations on the student's level. We need to, my biggest memory when I was evaluated was doing IQ tests left and right just so they could make sure that I didn't need what I claimed to need and what my parents need. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know uh, Alex who commented is actually my father. So I'm sure if he comments anything from this time, you know, he'll remember some of this from from the parents' perspective. Mm -hmm. But for me, one of the hardest parts was actually getting those accommodations and or not getting them and dealing with what that did. I was putting in a lot, as we spoke about last time I was on, I was putting in a lot of work outside of the classroom because I had higher expectations for myself. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop evaluating students on the basis of what we think they need and Mm -hmm. stop evaluating students on the basis of performance. Because just because a student is performing well does doesn't not mean, mean doing well. Exactly. Doesn't mean that they're learning as much as they can. Doesn't mean that, and even if they are learning, doesn't mean that they're having a good school experience because people keep saying, when I was homeschooled, people keep saying, well, part of school is the social aspect. Yeah. Yeah. If it's part of the social aspect, then help me have a good school experience by providing the support that I need. Don't place me in a position where I am going to be the target time and time again, and where my teachers and the administrators hate me for it. I I watched something something with the personnel, uh, with the staff that was filmed at the school I went to at the time I went to it. And it's not the building I have an issue with. I'm probably going to teach in that building at some point. It's the people that were there and the lack of support or even care they gave when when we were told that they were the best school for autistic kids. Yeah, you you make a great point when you talk about, you know, people do say that that it's really school is important for the socialization. And there's always the question, well, what are the students being socialized into? 
particularly if the students have to deal with bullying, particularly if the students have to deal with being ostracized because they have a disability, being separated out from the rest of the group, and not being able to interact with their peers in a healthy way. So yes, it is school is important for socialization, but we want it to be healthy socialization. Yes. It's not a place where students come home at the end of the day and they're like, please don't make me go back there. Exactly. That's not the kind of socialization that we want for our students. And um, Alex mentioned again in thinking about how to um, you know, allocate money for students to care for students coming back from a pandemic. He mentioned that one way to help us figure this out is to look at how students coped during the Great Depression. Apparently, that's like the 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 last time something of this magnitude happened in the United yes. States. So, how did students cope during the the Great Depression, and what things helped them, and what didn't help? Now, granted, we're in a different century now, and the world is a completely different place. So yes, we're going to have to tweak a little bit, but we do have to think carefully about, as you said, Liza, well, what are the things that the students needed long before the pandemic happened, and get to work on providing those things, and then also think about, well, now that we've provided the things that they should have had all along, is that adequately addressing the the impact of the pandemic? And one of the things that I know that students have needed all along is appropriate mental health services and mental health care and a not completely broken system for referring them and getting to those services. Now, if we put some money into that process, providing mental health services to students, I'm pretty sure that that's going to go a long way to address a lot of the impact of the pandemic on the students. Agreed. I was in that position as a, mm-hmm. at, uh, I think it was right as I was transitioning schools and when I was in a particularly bad situation, but I was in that situation at around 14 years old. There was nothing there for me. And that really impacted the way I thought about school and the way I acted. I still, I got grades that the administration would probably have considered good, but I definitely, and I still work just as hard as I always was putting in extra work so that I could get those grades, but I definitely, it, there was definitely a, a decrease there. And, and I think that's also something we have to consider um, that students may want to do better than the averages that they are being, um, that they are being marked against. Mm-hmm. And if you don't provide accommodations, they can't, but you don't provide accommodations because you think they're doing good enough and you don't want to have to spend the money on them or yeah. spend the effort on them. And um, um, Alex, we should just have your father come on the show. Yes, we should. He again points points out that, you know, a student who appeared to be, you know, on the surface to be doing all the things they're supposed to wasn't taken seriously 
as someone with a disability. And that gets back to an issue that I know that we've t- talked together about, wherein there's this belief that having a disability means you're stupid. So if yes. you were so if you were someone who can do your classwork and get this good grades, that must mean that you don't actually not have disabled. a disability. Yeah. That's not how disability works. It's certainly not how autism works. Autism is so often correlated with intellectual disability. And while those can sometimes co-occur, autism is not at its core an intellectual disability. It's at its core developmental, a neurodevelopmental disability. And And just not having a tolerance for people. (laughs) To be honest, Um, there are days where I'm like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not peopling today. I am not peopling today. And it has an impact on mental health. It has an impact on well-being. It has an impact on a student's ability to learn. Because when that, that need is not addressed, when people aren't aware of the fact that this student, they may look like they're doing well, but actually they're extremely stressed, not sleeping, terrified to go to school, we need to be able to be aware of those things and address those needs. Again, so we're going back to that point that school needs to be a safe place for students. Yes. So thinking thinking back, again, going back again to talking about what are some of the things that students have needed all along that they weren't getting, what are some of those things besides the, what we've talked about so far? Well, we certainly know that there needs to be a classroom community. And in Syracuse City Schools, that's very much something I wasn't feeling. I had one teacher who made an extreme effort to do that. And he was actually the teacher that I felt the most at home with. Um, My father will actually probably remember him. He was my sixth grade teacher. He... I didn't have any teachers who were knowingly disabled, but that's not the only way in which I stood out. I was this kid who was extremely into music, but didn't know how to express it. (laughs) I was the Jewish kid who couldn't do anything on Saturdays. So I was left out of major social events. Mm. And this teacher, for anyone who knows Syracuse, he was a conservative Concord is conservative. Yeah, he was a conservative Jew, went to Concord. He was a pianist who who played klezmer music and that sort of thing. And he had a piano in his classroom and played it when we had downtime. He was he was where I could find some of the things that singled me out as a student reflected back to me in someone who was teaching me. And I'm realizing more and more that that's why I want to go into education, go into special education specifically. Because the one thing I didn't see reflected back at me in any of of my teachers was any of them being disabled. Hmm. And disability isn't necessarily visible but we need more teachers who are going to be open about it with their students. I certainly didn't, even if I had any disabled teachers, I didn't have any who were open about it. And I get that it's personal, but if you're teaching disabled students, though it's important for those students to see themselves in themselves in you, just like I saw myself in 
this conservative Jewish pianist who was my teacher in sixth grade. That was incredibly important for me. And I was no longer the one who was left out of the community in the classroom, or at least I still was, but I had someone who reflected me there, even if I was left out. So community is one of the most important things. And that's something that we're going to really struggle with, I think, as we come back from COVID, where community has been really, really difficult to maintain. And that has its effects on mental health. Yeah, those those community connections were essentially broken by us trying to survive the pandemic. And the 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 way that you describe that relationship between yourself and and a teacher where you could see, you know, you had this common ground of experiences to build on, and he had an understanding of you and your culture. That's the basics of cultural competency. But doing the work to be able to understand the culture that your students live in so that you can find ways to connect with that student. And yes, that's easier to do when you and your students share a culture or share some aspect of your culture or identity, but it's not impossible if you don't because you can always learn. Yeah, and I not think, disabled can always learn what's what's important in the disabled community. But I think it's but I think it's easier for disabilities. I think it's easier for them to do so if there are people who reflect that student's background in the school, whether yeah. that isn't whether that is the teacher or not. The student can still seek them out and and have that representation there. And, and, and we, here we are back to the, the concept of representation and how important it is for the community to be reflected in a classroom where students are learning. And, um, excuse me, sorry. I think one of the things that, again, is, is very important, one of the things that students have needed all along that would probably help mitigate the impact of the pandemic is having enough teachers, having enough classroom aides. Oh uh, yes, oh yeah. yes. I don't, I don't remember if you were still in Syracuse when we lost so many teachers and classroom aides. When was it? Staff. I think that was about 2008. Oh, um, I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't even, it wasn't even an issue of still. I, we had just gotten here or might not even have been here yet. I'm sure that that he can put that in the comment Hmm. if uh, he has a better memory than I do on this. And yes, we do need to have gone. I completely neglected to think that he would be a good guest, Hmm. (laughs) but but yeah, uh, I, I don't think. If I was here, I was only just here finishing up my, we moved in the middle of the school year, so finishing up whatever year that was, which I think was technically, I was at third grade age at that point. Now, this is a great question that that your father has posted. He asked, would a disabled teacher get bullied? Oh, that's a, that's a difficult one. And that also focuses on the sense of community 
for staff and I okay are we talking bullied by the other adults or bullied by the students because those have different mitigating effects and different mm. reasoning behind them and different ways to prevent them so I, I think it would be good to explore both of those yeah because I, I can see a, a teacher being bullied by their peers or or being bullied by a superior that's totally believable. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's actually one of my biggest concerns as I'm going to, I'm probably, my mobility is, is starting to get more challenging and I am using my wheelchair more and more. And that is a visible thing. Not only am I artistic, which, you know, it, you know, that people will know that or they won't know it, but the wheelchair is a visible symbol of disability. And this actually, when we're talking, I'll bring this back later when we talk about the kids. Uh, as for the adults, that's a really difficult one because the adults are the ones that have these preconceived notions about ability. I mean, we've, ha we've seen it time and time again people assuming that just because someone's a wheelchair user, their brain doesn't work properly. They, they are mm -hmm. less intelligent, even though there's no correlation between the two. And even when there is, you know, that's not something I'd say, even when there is with, with some sort of intellectual disability that also has a physical component, those two are not connected in the way you think. Yes. So we've definitely seen links between physical disability and capability. Hmm. And we especially see that when we're talking about autism, which, you know, not physical, but we, we see this link between, supposed link between uh, neurodevelopmental disability and capability, which does not really exist, but that's, a notion that our society puts in people's heads. Mm -hmm. Adults are much more integrated in society, into society and have societal ideas, ideals than students do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think one thing to know, when thinking about would students bully a, a disabled teacher, that's a that's a strong possibility, especially if you have a school culture and climate where no one feels safe. So yeah. that again brings us back to the importance of building community, the importance of addressing trauma, the importance of making a classroom a safe space for the everyone thing, who walks into that classroom. The because thing if is, if it's not safe for the for the teachers, it's not a safe space. Safe if it's not safe for the students, it's not a safe, not space. safe space for the Everyone teachers. Everyone has to be safe. Yep. Now, I think one of the important things about this is that when we get to the younger students, they don't have these ideas in their head as much. And these students, if you have disabled teachers for younger students, or disabled personnel in the school when students are younger, they will grow up seeing disability as less out of the out of the normal. They will grow up seeing 
disability differently because they have actual disabled people to look to rather than societal preconceptions about disability. Yes, and I I think we have with, with the Gen Z generation, those are the students who have had more exposure to disabled people in their classrooms. So they are more comfortable with it And at least the ones that live in my house are very adamant about making sure that students get their IEPs, that their IEPs are followed, that their their friends get all of the services that are in their IEPs. And I think we're having more and more students coming up through the ranks who have that sort of mindset wherein, well, if this person needs this to have a good experience at school, why won't you give it to them? I was going to say your middle child, your daughter, uh, yeah, she's amazing at that. And she, I, I've seen, tends to attract uh, disabled people, possibly because she sees it as normal. Mm. It's not specifically that necessarily there's something about the disabled kids or something about her that she singles out disabled people to be friends with? No, it's just that she is more accepting of them and she is willing to use her power as an abled individual to fight for them, able peer to fight for them and getting what they need because people won't listen to them. Maybe they'll listen to her. Yeah, I'm I, sure I, she would agree I get with a lot of phone calls from, they're not following the IEP, what do we do? <laughs> yes, yep. <laughs> You, you've in fact gotten one of those, I think, while, while I was with you in the office, I wouldn't doubt. Yes. yes. So as, again, we, we go back to thinking about what students need as they go, as, as they're beginning to return to the classroom and how we prioritize spending with the, the influx of cash that we're getting from the federal government you know, the, the priorities need to be making classrooms a safe space, an emotionally safe space where students know that they're cared for, where students know that they are going to get help when they ask for it. And so they feel comfortable asking for help. And, and, that, they know, and that they know that the aspects of themselves, even though they are singled out from their from other people, that they are different from the peers in the classroom, especially if there's a dominant culture there, mm. that they that their differences, whether that's culture, disability, but especially culture, I can I can speak to because we've been seeing this with with case studies, we've been seeing this with kids in general, that their cultures are just as valid as the dominant group. That, that they are valued for and in the ways that they are different just as much as any of the other students. That, that even when the dominant ethnic or religious identity is white and Christian or, or even agnostic, I guess it would be, uh, not believing in anything, white and, and not just secular, the the people who are not, people who are 
ethno-religiously uh, Ashkenazi Jewish or even Sephardi Jewish are embraced for their beliefs, that those are understood and not singled out. For example, again, me, the kid who couldn't participate in anything on Saturdays. And that they feel like they're just as important as the other students, despite the fact that society may repeatedly again and again and again tell them otherwise anywhere but the classroom. And that experience isn't, sadly, it's not unique to any one ethnic group. No. You do it to everybody. And group out group bias again yeah. and again. And I, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in New York City, so I was often in classrooms that were majority minority, and the Syracuse City School District is majority also, minority. Yeah. And it's important to understand the, the dynamics between the different cultures and the different ethnicities, such that we learn to appreciate the differences among us. And we learn to find those differences interesting and worth studying and understanding and knowing well enough that you can participate in a culture that's different from your own. Yes. I'm not learning all these languages for no reason. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, learning, I found that learning a, a language other than your, your, your mother tongue, so to speak, is is a gateway to better understanding the culture that speaks that language. Yes, we were in a recent assignment, we were discussing the link in the education for ELL, English language learners class. We were discussing the link between language and culture and language death and why it's important to embrace these different languages in the classroom, because then you end up embracing the cultures from which they come and their own unique histories. We've seen what happens when you don't. Throughout the Jewish diaspora, there have Hebrew kind of died out in all but religious usages. And we've tried to resurrect it in the state of Israel. And it's, it's kind of had to have this odd retrofit and there has had to be an effort to hang on to Hebrew as it relates to Judaism. And I think this is true of any culture and any language that goes with it, that it's incredibly important to keep them alive and value them. Because if you lose it, you also potentially lose the culture that comes with it and its unique history. So we have a few minutes left. And I, I think I, to, to summarize, I think what things are in, important for students in learning, uh, students need to feel safe in their classrooms. And we need to prioritize, when we're making that budget, we need to prioritize the things that are gonna help students feel safe. And that is going to be giving teachers the tools that they need to be able to connect with their students and interact with their students and better understand their students. That means helping them understand what trauma does to a person's brain and a person's body, the, the impact that trauma has on the learning experience. 
that means that we're going to have to train mm -hmm. all of the adults, all of them, all of the adults that will interact with students, and that means every adult in the building, how to recognize disability, understand disability, how to relate to their students with disabilities. And I, I think, um, again, I, I love that my kids pointed out that they wanted a fun and interesting curriculum. So much is often taught by rote, and that's yeah. not necessarily. There are so many other ways to teach it. I mean, it's in the name of history, which is so often taught by rote. It's stories, it's things that actually happened. You know, you can teach it that way. And I think your, your children wrote down learning from YouTube and things like that. And I yes. think that's something we're seeing a greater amount of. And now that we are fully online, we're seeing a greater amount of these embraced. I mean, I watch channels like Oversimplified, Overly Sarcastic Production, um, any of these. And they, these are educational channels that explain probably just as well as anything you would get in a classroom, but are more, much more engaging. Hmm. Um, because they're, they're meant to grab people's attentions and exactly. get eyes stuck to screens. And yes, yes, one of the children did say that they learn more from YouTube <laughs> than they do from, from going to school. And um, Can I ask what number kid that was? Oh, that was number five. <laughs> of course it is. Of yeah. course he, yeah. And, uh, so there, there needs to be some focus on developing a curriculum that is meant to grab a student's mm -hmm. attention and hold a student's attention. I'm looking at you, Common Core. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's going to be my nemesis. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the bane of my existence as a teacher. I think it's the bane of the existence of a lot of teachers, certainly the students. Yes. And so, but, you know, I, I'm looking at this and, I, and, and the priorities that are popping up to me are investing in engaging curriculum that, that grabs the attention of students and holds the attention of students. Investing in creating a classroom where the teachers know how to make a safe space for their students and know how to connect with their students. Create, investing in, in the, the classroom aides, the staff, the, everyone who has contact with their students so that they know how to connect with students and how to, to relate and have a conversation and, and get, you know, kind of build those healthy relationships and bridge the differences so that the students know that they are, are safe and respected, so that the staff know that they're safe and respected, and cultivate that environment that fosters learning. Yeah. So whether or not that's going to happen, we will keep an eye, we will keep an eye and we will keep pushing to make sure that that happens, that, that all these extra dollars are invested in a way that benefits students. Now, if you, our, our listeners, have any suggestions for what you would prioritize in the Syracuse City School budget as they look for ways to allocate 
this new influx of funds, please leave a comment, leave us a note, tell us what you think, and we'll see how we'll see how the district does. We'll share we'll share with them that information about this is what people want to prioritize when it comes to the education of their students. Well, thank you everyone for joining in and commenting and watching this conversation. This is Fireside Chat Fridays, sponsored by Parents for Public Schools of Syracuse here on Facebook and on Straight Independent Radio. I wanna thank you, Liza Citron, for being my guest. And I look forward to when you are in the classroom being your awesome self for our students. I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and we will be get back again next week talking about the matter, all matters of education and giving voice to our community about education and about educating our students.